Open up your Bibles, beloved, to Isaiah 34, and, and I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. We're going to actually look tonight at both chapter 34 and 35 together. And there's a reason that I want to do that. I want to do that because I want us to see side by side the eternal realities of divine judgment and salvation. Okay? And, and the reason is this. is because in God's sovereign plan, there can't be salvation without judgment. Okay? There just can't. Um, both judgment and mercy, right, coexist in the Lord. And both of them display His eternal glory and majesty. So, if there's no judgment, there's no salvation because there's nothing from which to be saved and salvation loses its meaning. Right? You with me? Okay. So, let's read it all. Let's read it all and then we'll go back to 34 and we'll start. Okay? Draw near, your own nations to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations. And furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction. He has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out. And the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away. And the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fail. As leaves fall from the vine. Like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom. Upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of, kidneys of, ram, of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra. That was the capital city of Edom. A great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever from generation to generation it shall lie waste none shall pass through it forever and ever but the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it the owl and the raven shall dwell in it he shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness its nobles there is no one there to call it a kingdom and all its princes shall be nothing Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals and abode for ostriches. And many and wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them. His hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. The wilderness... 
and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak knees and make firm, I'm sorry, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water in the haunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. And let me, I'm going to give you the alternate reading here because it's better. If they are fools, they shall not wander in it. No lion shall be there, no, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the, redeem, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Let's pray. Lord, what an immense contrast this is. To behold side by side the, the promise and the outworking of your divine judgment on human sin. Your divine judgment on the rejectors and haters of God. On those who have refused Lord, your offer of grace. Father, the, 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 the picture of that judgment, Lord, it's, it's, it is astonishing, really. It is breathtaking. You reveal your judgment in a way in which it's hard for us sometimes to envision you. And then you see this beautiful picture of what salvation means. The highway that leads to, to you. The highway that you have created. The highway that you have appointed for us to walk upon who are your people. What a great gift that is. What a promise that holds. And how that should cause us, you know, to be strengthened in this time, for our hands to be strengthened and our weak knees to be, to be firm. God, I'm just grateful to you for doing everything for us, everything necessary for our redemption that we could never do. And then, Father, by your sovereign grace, regenerating our dead hearts so that, Father, we would desire the very thing that a regenerated heart's de- heart desires, which is you, your Son. Pray that as we look at these words tonight, Father, you would both comfort and strengthen us, but Lord, you'd motivate us to be diligent about taking the gospel into this world in light of the fate that awaits it. And that we would not shy away from being the instruments by which your means of grace are proclaimed in this world. So just give us wisdom, Father, as we look at this text tonight. Help us to comprehend it. 
I pray that it would just, you know, sink deeply into our souls. Now, the truth is, this text is pretty plain. It doesn't need a great deal of exposition. But I pray, Lord God, that you'd help us to just be moved by its, by its message, its truth. And I pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. So we have here this picture, right? A divine judgment on one hand and salvation on the other, right? And again, there is no salvation apart from judgment. Like, it, it, there's, there's, no, there's nothing from which to be saved if there is no divine judgment, right? And, and God brings us face to face with that through Isaiah. Like he, you know, we see this pattern over and over again. Like when we looked at the, at the woes that were, that were laid upon the nations back in, you know, the, the 20 chapters, you know. And then, then we get to a picture of, you know, the worldwide judgment and, 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 and work of God. We see it again here. It's the same pattern, right, that, that we see developed for us. And so I want us to look beginning, first of all, at this terrifying picture of divine judgment. And it is terrifying. Look again just at verses 1 through 4 with me. Isaiah begins, he says, Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction and has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their host shall fall, as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. Now those are arresting and shocking words, right? They are. And they demand our attention. Because... God's judgment, beloved, while it is never, you know, a comfortable subject to discuss, it is, however, an indispensable part of Scripture's teaching, right? And especially regarding the last things. And the reason why judgment is necessary is obvious. Judgment is the natural outworking of the fact that God is the sovereign king of the universe, right? He is the creator. He is the sovereign Lord. And a sovereign must rule, right? A sovereign has to rule or he's no king at all. And that means this, that the rebellion that's against his rule, wherever it takes place, ultimately it must be exterminated, right? And that's what we're seeing here. And so hence, here's this divine call to all the nations, you know, to hear and to give attention to God's words. Like, you know, it's to all the peoples. It's to everything that, 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 dwe- everyone that dwells upon the earth, the world and everything that comes from it, right? Like nothing is excluded from this call. The idea is you better pay attention. You need to listen right now. Okay. And God is putting the world on notice that he will not tolerate insurrection against him forever he just won't in fact here we have an image of it's really an image it's a picture it's a it's a painting right i mean when we look at this like it's it's not intended that we look at it and go okay one for one correlation between you know how the judgment of god works out it's a picture he's drawing a vision for us he's giving us an like a like a painting if you will of of what it's going to look like okay it's an image, a vision, a picture that is punctuated, though, with concrete terms, right? 
Notice what he says. God is enraged against all nations. That word enraged is a Hebrew word that speaks of a sharp and an unrelenting indignation against those who reject his rule. Now it's important that we understand something here. Most times when we think of somebody being enraged, right? We think of, of, of being enraged in, 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 in human terms. And we usually associate that with being out of control, right? That is not the idea here. That is not the picture here at all. God is never out of control. God is never out of control. He never does anything that is outside his character. What he does is purposeful. It is deliberate. And it's always in keeping with his perfect justice. And so what we've got to understand here is that this rage that God has against the nations of the earth is absolutely just. Look what else he says. God is furious. God is furious. That is, he has an abiding animosity. He's got a heated displeasure. Okay? That is his, that is his temperament toward rebels. Moreover, he's devoted them to destruction. That's the Hebrew word harem. It's a word that describes a segregation. A separating out of those who despise God and reject His Lordship from further contact with the people of God and placing them under the ban. And if you're familiar with Israelite history, that idea of of being under the ban is a sentence of annihilation such as God had decreed in Israel's conquest of Canaan. They were not to let, let anybody escape the sword. And then last, he's given them over to slaughter. It's, it's like the slaughtering of an animal. God's wrath upon the world of unbelievers is a terrifying thing, right? Yeah. Now look, here's the truth. We know this. God's wrath is being expressed every day, isn't it? In a myriad of different ways. Paul tells us in Romans, again, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, right? That, that's present tense, right? That's present tense. The wrath of God is, not will be, is. Daily, we're confronted with the increasing evidence of God's wrath and the terrible price that this world of sinners is paying now for its rejection of God, the, the, the rampant proliferation of violence, of sexual immorality and perversion, the crumbling of civility, the natural disasters that aren't natural. Death, you know, the, the growing just lawlessness, all the various calamities that we describe as tragedies. We know what those are. We, knew, we know what those are from what we studied in Revelation. They're gracious prejudgments of God that are meant to arrest the hearts of fallen men, right? And yet, what Isaiah is saying here is that is, these are nothing. They are nothing compared to what is to come. 
In other words, here's what we need to see. And I, and I, I think we really need to embrace this more than we do. Divine judgment is not a theological abstraction. It's not a theological balloon to kick around and bop around and, and just, you know, debate and talk about. It is real. And in and, and this text that we're looking at, it is not a theological abstraction. It is rather, the, in, in these words, destruction, slaughter, stench, and blood. In fact, it's interesting, like, Isaiah addresses the fact that the entire cosmos has been infected with human sin, right? And so, this world of sin has got to be undone. In other words, in physical terms, the word of the Lord describes stars falling from the heavens, like leaves from the vine, and like leaves falling from a fig tree, and the sky rolling up as a scroll, right? This entire creation is infected and affected. By the sin of Adam and the sin of those who are in him. Even those who were in him and are now in Christ. It's affected. God's got to judge sin. And his righteous and final judgment has got to be accomplished, right? Now I know that the end of the world, the thoroughness of God's judgment, that's a reality which all of us, what do we do? We instinctively push that to the back of our minds, don't we? Just like as we get older, we instinctively push to the back of our minds like the thought that one day my heart's going to stop beating. We don't want to think about that. Because those are, there are eventualities there that have to be addressed, right? It's horrific to contemplate. But here's the thing. God will not let us avoid it, will He? He won't. He's king. He's going to bring judgment on all who rebel against his kingship. That's the bedrock truth on which this judgment rests. But you know what else God is? Besides a king, he's a warrior. And in verse 5, we meet his sword. Look at it. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, take notice. Open your eyes. See what's happening, in other words. It descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people that I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers of the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Look at that. God declares that on this great day of judgment, when His sword does its work in the heavens, it's going to find its target in Edom. The question here is, why does Isaiah choose Edom here? Or why does God lead Isaiah to choose Edom here as the target of His sword? Edom, you remember, was Judah's southern neighbor, right? Edom, the nation, were the descendants of who? Esau. Right? Who was the brother of Jacob? Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. Those two nations were blood brothers, weren't they? They were. They were blood brothers. What could Edom have possibly done to be the object of such fury from God? Chiefly this. It had set itself against the people of God. 
You read the history of the nation of Israel and Edom was an, their inveterate enemy. Their hatred, Edom's hatred and hostility against Israel was a perpetual and established pattern. And in fact, the only king in Israel that had ever conquered and subdued them. You want to take a guess? King David. Only one. And it's those two factors, beloved, that make Edom especially fit to stand as the representative of the whole world in final judgment. Okay? Those two things. Their ceaseless hostility against the people of God, which the people of God, in fact, will, will endure in this world until the day of Christ comes, right? And also the fact that Edom was only ever conquered by David. Just as this world of sinners will be finally and fully conquered by David's greater Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we've got a picture of this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, don't we? Starting in verse 5 where Paul writes, This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. The correlation there is remarkable, isn't it? Isn't it? The purpose of God's judgment. Verse 8 is what? It's to uphold Zion's cause. The vengeance and the retribution which this judgment involves. They're expressions of God's commitment to those whom He has chosen to be His people and to His own glory. Right? That's what it is. Vengeance, sometimes we think about it. We, sometimes when we think about vengeance, we often view it as contrary to the spirit of Christianity. And so when we look at this, it's shocking to hear of God's vengeance. How do we understand that? Well, again, we don't project onto God the sinful motives and emotions behind human acts of vengeful malice, right? Divine vengeance, beloved, is integral to the moral order of the universe. And what divine vengeance does is correct the disorder and the chaos that is introduced by evil. It, it's God's sovereignty over it. And really what this does is it all go back, goes back to God's sovereign choice of Abraham. Do you remember back when, when God chose Abraham? Do you remember what the crucial question was for everybody else in the world as it regarded their relationship to Abraham? What was it? Those who bless you, what? I will bless. And those who curse you, what? I will curse. They'd be blessed if they blessed him. They'd be cursed if they cursed him. And that's the way that God has always worked and he still does today. Now, the particulars have changed. God today works through Christ and his people, but the same basic choice faces that faces the world that faced ancient Edom. How you respond to Christ and to his people 
will define to a degree your present, but with certainty your eternity. I want you to notice something else here. Because the language here is deliberate. Well, of course it is. It's always deliberate in the Word of God. But you know what I'm saying. (laughs) Notice that the judgment here on Edom is pictured both as a terrible slaughter, but it's also described as what? A sacrifice. What does that tell us? What does that tell us? That there's a... What kind of element to this? A sacrifice means that there's some kind of a what element to it? A religious element. Right? What that shows us is this, is that God's judgment is not just about God acting to vindicate His people. It is that, but it's more. The language of sacrifice here, the fat, the blood of the lambs and goats, the fat of the kidneys of rams, that speaks to worship, doesn't it? It speaks to rightfully honoring God. Here's what sacrifice is about. It's about recognizing who God Himself is and then giving Him the due He is worth, right? So what we see here is that God's judgment upon Edom is not just merely a judicial or a military act. It is also a religious one. And the sacrifice is Edom. And it's God acting to claim at last the honor that's due Him as creator and ruler of the world. That's why we read in Revelation, for instance, that great outburst of praise for God's righteous judgments. And you know, I could pick several places, but I'll... In, in Revelation, say, 19. Because it means not only the vindication of God's people, but the vindication of God Himself. For instance, after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and He has avenged on her the blood of His servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who is seated on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. Right? Now at this point, we're ready to like move on to something else, right? I mean, this is, aren't you? Aren't you ready to move on to something better than judgment? Something more encouraging? Yeah, me too. But God through Isaiah is not quick to move on. He's not. He's not quick to move on from his description of judgment. Again, he describes the gravity of this judgment that's coming. Again, just look at the picturesque description that starts in verse 9. And, and we're not going to go through every single aspect of this, okay? We're not going to do that. But, but I do want to pull out a couple of things. Just look at it. He says, The streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. What's that speak to? What's that speak to? Just absolute thorough destruction, right? Absolute, just it's consumed, right? Night and day, it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. That sounds familiar. I think we just read that, right? In Revelation. From generation to generation, it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall dwell. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. It's nobles. There is no one there to call it a kingdom. In other words, there are no nobles there. They're gone. Right? And all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals, an abode for ostriches, and wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. There the owl, you know, rests 
nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there are hawks gathered, each one with her mate. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded, and the Spirit, His Spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them. His hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever from generation to generation. They shall dwell in it. So, what, again, we're not going to break this down phrase by phrase, but I, I want us to just get the, the overarching picture here. The overarching picture is, this destruction of Edom is going to be in perpetuity, right? It's eternal. It, it's like, it's gone. Edom is gone for good, forever and ever. And the, the picture there of the animals and the thorns and the nettles and the thistles and everything, you know, gradually overrunning, the, the picture is that, look, it's never going to be rebuilt, okay? It's never going to be rebuilt. Now, it's, it, you know, it is a prophecy of destruction that was going to come upon Edom, yeah, but it sees a bigger picture here, right? It's a, it's a picture of, of, idle fina- of utter finality, the absence, complete absence of mankind. Did you catch that? Like, there's nobody there. Not a single human being. It's eternal destruction. And that smoke of its destruction rises forever as it does in Revelation. And take note, for just really quickly, look at verses 16 and 17 again. It says, seek and read from the book of the Lord. Right? The idea is, man, pick up and read the book. Hear what's being said to you by the prophets. None of these are going to be missing. These animals that are going to, you know, the the picture is that I've given everything over to them because you're going to be gone. In fact, the idea here is there's no escaping God's declaration of the fate of those who persist in their rebellion against them. Their fate is fixed by God's determined purpose. It has been written in in His book. God doesn't write like we do. When I write with my pencil, I'm sure to have an eraser on the other end. You know why? Because I make mistakes. Really? (gasps) Really? Yeah, really. Like when I'm writing, I'm thinking a word, and sometimes it looks nothing like what I just wrote down. So I erase it and start over. God doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. You know, his plans are written in eternity. They don't change. There's no altering of them. They're eternal in the heavens. Not only are they written in his book, he says here, the picture is, the mouth of the Lord has commanded. It's not just that he's written his plan down. He's spoken it. And he's put it into motion. Now here's the deal. We look at that, and that text serves as a great warning to unbelievers to flee from the wrath to come, right? It should. But why are the people of God, why are we given these pictures of the fate of the unbelieving? One, it's to show us what we've been delivered from. Isn't it? It's to show us, look, in your sin, this is what you deserve. This is what you've earned. If it were not for God's electing love, this is you. This is you. And again, like I said on Sunday, you know, like, 
are we to argue with the way that God saves anyone who is undeserving of salvation? Right? Like, that's the height of hubris and stupidity combined. This text shows us that from which we have been delivered. But you know what else it ought to do? It ought to spur us into missionary action, right? Again, you know, when you go back and you look at Romans 10, like, we don't know who God's elect are. We have no idea. You know? Sometimes, you know, just, just following Reformed theology, people accuse you of being a hyper-Calvinist. Let me tell you something about the difference between hyper-Calvinists and people who believe biblical theology. I don't even like the name Calvinism. Because it didn't originate with him. It originated with God. Hmm. Hyper-Calvinism is you preach the gospel to people when they've given evidence of being elect. How exactly do they do that? How is it that you give evidence of being elect? You know how you give evidence of being elect? That God has chosen you? It's that when the word of God comes to you, it comes with power. And you believe it. And you respond in faith to Christ. And that's not a work of yourself. It's the gift of God. So what? You can't boast. And God gets all the glory. We need to be deliberate in our missionary endeavors. What are the means? You preach the gospel. You preach the gospel. Look Look at Romans 10 again. Look at it. I just want you to see it again. I want you to see it. Put it on your eyes. Here we are. We're living in a world under judgment, right? Here's what God says through Paul. This is the word of God. Verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? They can't. And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? That's what that says literally. Not of. That of's not in there. How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? What does that mean? It means through the preaching of the word of God. What? The voice of Christ goes out. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written. Sent by who? God. As it's written. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. We need to be more serious about our missionary endeavor. And quit acting like judgment doesn't really happen. Because it does. It will. And people aren't good. Sorry to burst that bubble. On a human level, sure, people can do good things. No one's good in the eyes of God. God's judgment's coming. Nobody can stay His hand. But accompanying this harrowing and terrifying judgment, thank goodness we see this picture of salvation, right? Look at it, it's beautiful. In marked contrast, this previous chapter, Isaiah declares the beauty of God's salvation. Look at it, and it's just cool. Again, it's another, it's a picture. He says, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. Why do wilderness and dry land exist? 
Why do wilderness and dry land exist? Why? Take a guess. Why do wilderness and dry land exist? Let me ask you a question. In the Garden of Eden, was there wilderness and dry land? No. Why do wilderness and dry land exist? Our sin. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. Right? Romans 8, the the creation is crying out, right? For the revelation of the sons of God. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy in singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. I love this. Isaiah first describes for us this new world in which there's no corruption or stain of sin at all. Arid wastes are bursting into bloom as the glory of the Lord comes, you know, raining down like refreshing waters. And the whole earth shouts for joy. And the whole earth hasn't been able to shout for joy since Adam gave in to the temptation of Satan and his wife. But now they shout. There's nothing now to inhibit the full display of the glory and the majesty of God. The curse is gone. And the the creation now bursts with beauty and splendor of the Lord. It's a land of perfection, right? Where God's people will revel in His glory and His splendor. It's this great promise that God gives to His people, right? And so what does Isaiah do? He takes that promise and he does with the promise what you're supposed to do. He turns it to an exhortation to the people of God, right? He takes that promise And he exhorts God's people to endurance and hope. Look what he says in verses 3 and 4. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance with a recompense of God. He will come and save you. This vision... This, this vision is given to steady trembling hands, right? And to strengthen weak knees and to lift fearful hearts. Here's what that means. Strengthening weak hands is, a, is a, a, an idiom to describe putting your hands to personal action. Like don't just sit there. Don't just, you know, just sit there and cower and whatever. It's, it's rise up, Right? This idea of making firm the feeble knees speaks to stability and perseverance. It speaks to sticking with the pilgrimage. I've said this this to you before. Okay? Many times we exalt in the starters. God rejoices in the finishers. He rejoices in the finishers. He rejoices in those who who run the race to the end. And the strengthening of the heart, what is it? It speaks to nourishing our souls with the truth of God's Word and His promises to keep us going so that we do indeed lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the author and the finisher of our faith. And he says, listen, man, judgment's coming. God is coming. You know, God is going to come with vengeance. He's coming with his recompense. His vengeance upon his enemies, his recompense that will be paid out in full to the God rejectors. And what that's going to mean for you is your full and your final salvation. 
This text then speaks to divine transformation. Look what he says. Verses 5 through 7. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Here's the picture. In the midst of this world in which we live, we've got no power and no strength to deliver ourselves or help ourselves, right? We're described here variously as blind or deaf or or lame or mute. We can't rescue ourselves, but God's people will be saved and delivered by Him. God will do what only God can do. In fact, He's going to raise up a highway for them and bring them home. This is so cool. Look at this. Starting in verse 8. And a highway shall be there. How'd it get there? How'd it get there? God put it there, right? A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. If they are fools, they shall not wander in it. No lion shall be there. That's nothing to fear, right? No ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and, sing, and sighing shall flee away. This is so cool. God will raise up, right, a highway called the way of holiness, right? The way of everlasting joy. What is it? It's the way to Zion. It's the way to the city of God and to everything that that symbolizes. In New Testament terms, It's the highway to heaven, right? It's the highway into the new Jerusalem. It's the highway into the very presence of God. And that highway is who? Christ. I want you to think about this with me. One of the major themes, I'm so glad to be saying, holy, holy, holy tonight. One of the major themes of Isaiah in this book has been the holiness of God, hasn't it? Above all else, right? God is holy. So, The way of holiness or the way to holiness or the way that ends in holiness. Listen to me. It's not just the way to Zion or the way to heaven. Beloved, it is the way to God. That's the point. What makes heaven glorious is not the stuff that makes up so many southern gospel songs. It's not the streets of gold and the pearly gates. And mama and daddy and Uncle Bob. and It's not. What makes heaven glorious is what? Christ, the presence of God. To be in heaven with God forever in totally joyous, unspoiled fellowship with Him. And that's the way, that way that God provides Himself. He provides it. Right? What did Jesus say? I'm what? I am the way the truth and the life right no one comes to the father except through me the highway of holiness beloved it's only for those who have been redeemed or ransomed those words redeemed the specific hebrew words that are used here for redeemed and ransomed they appear for the first time here in isaiah redeems a word that describes the action of a kinsman to rescue a relative from danger okay here the picture is Yahweh's role as the father of his people, right? 
And Christ's role is what? Our elder brother. And the action that God takes to deliver his people because of his sovereign and eternal choice and ownership of us as his own. And then the word ransom describes the release of someone by the payment of a price or the provision of a substitute. And together, those two terms refer to a powerful and a costly deliverance, right? And while they have their roots in Exodus, they actually do have their roots in Exodus, in the Exodus from Egypt, they find their final significance in the blood of Christ, right? That delivers and purchases us from the power of sin and Satan and hell and death and from the wrath of God. The way of holiness, the way of salvation, it's not one we create. It's not one that we can improve. It's the one that God provides and that He declares is the only way. The highway that, that highway, though, will not be traveled by those who have made themselves unclean, who have devoted themselves to sin is the idea, and who in their wickedness have made themselves fools. The idea there is the, the person who rejects the God of Scripture and His way of redemption and salvation. That's the idea of that word fool. The highway alone is for the ransomed and the redeemed of God who have responded to His call and who repent and believe and return to the Lord. And the end of the highway of holiness at the end is singing and joy and gladness. In other words, it's a picture. It's a picture. It's always a picture, right? This singing and joy and gladness. It's of life in perfect and full communion with God. Right? It's a promise. It's the ultimate promise for the people of God who are exiles in this fallen world or strangers, right? Like Les was praying. The way that Peter describes us. He describes us as what? Elect exiles. According to what? The foreknowledge of God the Father. The foreloving. The election of God the Father. In the sanctification, the setting apart unto the Lord of the Spirit and for obedience to Jesus Christ. The obedience of faith, Right? and for sprinkling with His blood our sanctification, ultimately ending in our what? Glorification. We can't save ourselves, but the way has already been raised up for us. Christ. And God has placed us in Him according to His sovereign grace, and so we're on our way home. And the certainty of that promise gives us strength for what remains of the journey. You ever been on a road trip? And you're getting tired? And then you see like the sign that says, you know, Roanoke, 37 miles. The reason I know that is because there's a sign coming back from Pennsylvania that says Roanoke, 37 miles. And about, it's, I always get to that sign about the time that I'm like, I am sick of this drive, right? But when I see that sign, Jesse's not going to like this, my speed increases. <laughs> And I'm excited and I'm filled with joy at the prospect of getting home. Look, man, joy and gladness and God himself are up ahead, right? That's the whole point. And with certain knowledge and, and by his unrelenting grace, we rise above our weariness, we stand firm and we walk, right? Now, here's the thing. This picture, obviously, it's couched in the idea of exile and a return. But it really reaches far beyond anything like that, right? It's, it's, it's beyond anything temporal. Here's the point, though, beloved. Isaiah is laying it out to us, right? God has decreed what it is. And there can be no blessing without curse. And there can be no salvation without judgment. And there can be no heaven without hell. I know, you know, 
We may want one without the other. And if we had to choose one, it would be what? Salvation, right? But to do that is to rewrite God's plan to suit our own inclinations. And biblical revelation will not be manipulated. The plain teaching of Scripture forces us to a decision, right? You either accept God's plan of redemption and judgment as it is, or not at all. You either accept it, or you make up your own religion. And how did that work out for the nations of the world? Thoughts, comments, anything? Quickly. Yes, Mark? Now, you can see Christ in this so much. Oh. Chapter 35, verse 4, where it says God comes with vengeance and reckoning. Yeah. How does he do that? In Christ. He comes through Christ with yeah. That description in Thessalonians, doesn't it, it like lines up so perfectly with this. It lines up so perfectly with Isaiah. And you can see that little run through verses 5 and 6. You can see Christ's miracles, most of them tied to Old Testament prophecy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The eyes of the blind, the yep. Path, the lame, the, the tongue. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Him is the living water. Right? right? The waters that break forth in the wilderness and the streams in the desert. Yeah. Brian, you had a question, didn't you? You were going to say something? Yeah, in 34, mm-hmm. Speaking of the stars, the host of heavens, you know, the heavenly host, the stars and everything. The idea there is that word rot is a word that means to decline and decline until it dies. But the idea is, is that God is the active, you know, agency behind the declining and the death and the gone. Yeah. All right, let's pray because it's getting late. Mark, will you pray for us, bro? Thank you. Father God, we just thank you uh, so much. There's just some word other than gratitude to represent how we feel about the fact that you did not leapfrog over our finite minds, but you left us words about your character, your plan, and your great love for us and your grace that we could understand and that it's relevant and applicable. These words, these ancient prophecy words, are relevant and applicable to us today. Yeah. Reflect your character. Um, the intricacies of your your dealing with mankind is plain and it's true and it's right and it's good. And we we stand in awe of that. And our great desire collectively is to be obedient to your word and to magnify Christ and to share the good news with every living creature that we encounter. So I just pray that you would help just open our eyes and our ears to the truth. Let us see it clearly, Father, that this life that we have on this side of eternity would be considered an act of worship, that, that we could serve you with a true heart, that we could know and understand your word in context. This is good. It's so good. And I thank you for it tonight, Father. Just Continue to lead God and direct us in this way. Give us a hunger for obedience, a hunger to be more like Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. Amen.